Welcome to the Subtle Cane Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, broadcasting from the Aorta of America, beautiful festival city, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we pump out reason and pierce through the propaganda. Here we go. Today is Sunday, January 28, 2024. This is episode 62 of the Subtle Cane Podcast, War of the Words. If you're new to the Subtle Cane Podcast, thank you for gracing us with your virtual presence. If you're a returning listener, thank you for your continued support. It is much appreciated. We see a lot of coverage and hear an awful lot about the New World Order these days. And if you go on social media or watch some YouTube or Rumble videos, you might be tempted to believe that the whole Great Reset New World Order agenda is a relatively new phenomenon. Of course, the seeds of totalitarianism go back throughout human history, and this latest cast of clowns are only carrying on what was started long ago. We examined the history of eugenics and technocracy here in earlier episodes, and it pays to learn about the history of these things for several reasons. Firstly, it helps us get a better perspective about just how insidious and persistent tyranny is. Secondly, it allows us to recognize patterns that invariably repeat themselves throughout history. And of course, it allows us to use inductive reasoning to predict with some modicum of accuracy the trajectory of the events we are witnessing and hearing about now. Today, author Terry Wolf is back to take us on a little adventure in the time machine and discuss one of the major social influencers and authors of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Mr. H.G. Wells. He also offers some insight about the apparent tensions between Wells and George Orwell, who I'm sure I don't have to mention wrote one of the most referred to books of today, 1984. Let's strap in for what turned out to be a rather long discussion about the ideological rivalry between the two great minds of the past. If you want to watch the video of our discussion, Terry posted it to his YouTube channel. I can't really handle seeing myself on camera, but the option is there. The link's in the show notes, and uh, here we go. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for having me back on. Um, I'm up in Canada, you know, where it's really freezing, and, uh, you know, we're trying to trying to keep our mind off of that. So, you know, you get your head into weird (laughs) rabbit holes and books and things like that, trying to, uh, trying not to, you know, think about the weather. So that's, I think probably why I get into writing my own books and going on doing podcasts and everything else, you know, you got to stay, stay occupied with, uh, something other than the drudgery and darkness up here. But, uh, Uh, Wisconsin has a similar climate and, you know, we've been sub-zero for the last, like, week and a half. So, just inching back up to the 30s, so it's warm out now. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I've i been looking into some stuff I thought was pretty fascinating. And for me, um, when I get into that kind of mode, I like to try to share it with people and, and see where it goes from there. One of the things I've found over the years is that, you know, with my TikTok account, it was a perfect example was, you know, I throw something out that maybe it's it's almost random, it's out of context, but somebody somewhere will 
pick that up and then it can have a trickle effect where, or, or a wave effect where somebody else will then say, Oh, like a researcher or somebody who's, who's also doing their own research. They can run with that. And it leads to places that I wouldn't have expected. So I, I'm kind of more shameless now, but just trying to uh, throw talking points on my Substack or uh, on my social media. So this one, um, I've made a, a case for a long while that I think HG Wells is very underappreciated and underestimated by um, researchers into the New World Order, the, the, the conspiracy that we're always talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the most part, um, people still just think of H.G. Wells as being a science fiction author, you know, The Invisible Man and, and you know, War of the Worlds and these different things and his depictions of, you know, uh, science fiction were very important. That is what he's most famous for. But he was also very much a thought leader of an actual generation of intellectuals on on the Atlantic coast uh, in, in England and in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've recently found more evidence that I thought was quite um, like I, I'm surprised that I haven't seen this before. I think that's what that's what really caught my eye was that. I've never heard people talk about the relationship between H.G. Wells and George Orwell. And um, so I found, like, I knew, and I, and I should tell people who don't know, that H.G. Wells actually just straight up wrote a book called The New World Order, in which, you know, you might say, well, okay, what is that actually about? It's pretty much a exactly what you think. It's saying we need to get rid of federal governments. We need to get rid of uh, national sovereignty. We need to have a world government. And it should be run by these benevolent technocrats that uh, will make all of our decisions for us and ensure that we're all safe and, and taken care of. And they will provide everything that we need. We can't have individual states controlling their own destiny and having their own conflicting ideas because that leads to bad things like war and uh, you know trade disputes and greed and this kind of stuff he also hates capitalism and the idea that uh, you know rich people can run away with wealth and then there's this inequality and stuff so it's really this very early and still completely resonant idea with what the global elites are essentially inching towards although the whole question is you know, why don't they just do it? Why haven't they done it? And what's stopping them? And, you know, what is the big plan? Is this all going according to their plan? Is it not? And this is where George Orwell actually comes in. And to me, it's very interesting because um, everyone assumes, and I've heard many people say when you, when you look it up, that 1984 was a commentary on communism. And on, you know, Stalinism and this idea of, you know, that he was basically looking at the Bolshevik revolution and this stuff and and saying, this could be our future if we're not careful. But I've actually found that George Orwell hated H.G. Wells. You know, they're two British authors overlapping, although Orwell was younger. And 
and, and so I have an article that I found. Uh, you can look it up very easily. It's called Wells, Hitler, and the World State, uh, written by George Orwell. So like right there, you have – this is in during World War II. Uh, Wells, Hitler, and the world state. So the, nobody knows the outcome of World War II at this point when this is being written. Right. But he, Orwell has, H.G. Uh, Wells has been weighing in on it. He's been, you know, he, he's, H.G. Wells thought that communism might be the thing to replace the West. He thought that communism might be the solution. Um, a, a world communist dictatorship there's a lot of things he actually liked about it and you know Don't germany early on yeah yeah go ahead so it's you wells um one of the lines here that i feel like is uh uh i i didn't highlight here so let me look for it but um he talks about the influence of hg wells so he says but is it not a sort of parricide, meaning, you know, killing your own parent, your own father, for a person of my age, 38, to find fault with H.G. Wells? Thinking people who were born about the beginning of this century are in some sense Wells's own creation. How much influence any mere writer has, and especially a popular writer whose work takes effect quickly, is questionable, but I doubt whether anyone who has who was writing books between 1900 and 1920, at any rate, in the English language, influenced the young so much. And once you realize Wells wasn't just writing science fiction, this really is like a perfect window into the past where these things were taking root, and the idea of this global government, the New World Order, was really you know, still just up for debate. It was still fresh on people's minds as the wars were happening. And these people are thinking, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? You know, that was the whole idea is that the United Nations, the World Federation, as H.G. Wells called it, would prevent wars from ever happening again because everything could be controlled and mediated and regulated from the top down. And Orwell here... In this essay, um, he he talks about how H.G. Wells doesn't appreciate the uh, doesn't appreciate the irrationality of of people. Like he here's another quote from him. He says, um, "Science is fighting on the side of super fighting on the side of superstition." Um, he says. It is impossible for Wells to accept this. It would contradict the worldview on which his whole his works are based. The warlords and the witch doctors must fail. The common sense world state, meaning you know this world government, as seen by a 19th century liberal whose heart does not leap at the sound of bugles, must triumph. Treachery and defeatism apart, Hitler cannot be a danger. That he should finally win would be an impossible reversal of history, like a Jacobite restoration. Meaning, and he, he makes this point over and over again, that's just one quote, but 
um, that HG Wells a little bit. Sorry, what's that? I was I was saying if you could break that down a little bit. How was how do you yeah. interpret that? So what he's saying is that uh, HG Wells is a stuffy intellectual who um, sees the world as progressing from nationalist, barbaric, self-interested, small-minded countries towards a sane, orderly, um, transcendental sort of big picture rationality where things in the future are going to all be scientific. They're all going to be sterile and well-measured and proportionate, and they won't, you won't ever have a dictator again. That just doesn't work anymore. And H.G. Wells is saying, there's no reason that doesn't work anymore. Just because technology has advanced, just because science is the order of the day, science can be used by people like Hitler to commit even greater atrocities, to do even worse things than anyone would have any warlord would have hoped in the past. And so it's not just that there was the dark ages and this medieval sort of brutality, and then science came in and now we're progressing towards this utopian future where all problems will be solved by this world state. It's that, you know, that's why he mentioned something like, you know, his heart leaping at the sound of a bugle, just this sort of raw patriotic, irrational call to arms. We're just going to go out and kill people. We're just going to go out and, you know, Orwell understands that side. And if you read 1984 with that in mind, you actually get a much better commentary there because 1984 is very much about the control of passions, the control of language and ideas to the extent that you know, they have their, I forget exactly what it was called. What is it? The four minute rage or, or, uh, um, the two minutes of hate or two, two minute it? hate. Yeah, it was whatever it was. There's a couple minutes of hate or whatever, where they were <laughs> gathered. Normally they were completely docile and pacified and numbed. And then that Orwell understood would mean, you know, you have all this pent up, bottled up frustration and angst uh, because your life sucks so much. And, and on some subconscious level, at least you realize you're being lied to and everything is horrible. And so there needs to be a vent for it. And so that's why in his story, there's this, this, you know, thing where they show you a video of these horrible things where women are being shot with machine guns and, and all these atrocities are happening on the screen. And then you can just, you know, uh, let out all of your passions at once, and it's a very controlled sort of passion. It's it's kind of a reflection of Orwell making fun of what kind of, you know, how you would have to manage a new world order. Right, um, because the passions are still there, but people need to vent that, but at least you can provide them as the scapegoat and vent that away from the systems of power toward the assigned scapegoat, but still right. acknowledging that it's there underneath the yes. surface. All time. You just have to direct it somewhere so that it becomes useful. And then you can go back to being, you know, just a, a, a animal, essentially just a, just a, you know, insignificant, uh, being that, that doesn't really, 
you know, have a intellectual life. It's very obviously extremely anti-intellectual, just like, um, you know, a new speak, you know, destroys the whole language to the point where people can't express ideas anymore. That was, that's kind of the central uh, plot device of, of 1984 is the fact that just people can't express themselves anymore because they've taken away all the language. And that also is sort of a parody or a, um, a, a counter proposal, I guess you could call it to HG Wells, where HG Wells imagines that the education level of everyone is going to get better and better and better. And that the, the ruling class genuinely might have the best interests because HG Wells did, was not trying to be evil. That's that's right. almost sort of the horrifying thing about the New World Order is that it really does believe that it has the greater good in mind and that it can solve the world's problems by just controlling everything. And they mm -hmm. will provide you an education. They will tell you what are what good opinions are, what bad opinions are, and which direction mankind has to go. And they will use science to justify it. Um, H.G. Wells obviously... If you know that his contemporaries, you know that he was also best friends with uh, Bertrand Russell, who mm. is this, you know, I see on TikTok and on other places that I wouldn't expect people still fawning over Bertrand Russell like he was a saint and he is the father of modern scientific thinking and whatever. Um, Bertrand Russell very explicitly believed in eugenics. He believed yeah. in controlling uh, breeding, uh, human breeding, and wanted to breed sub races for doing hard work and other ones for ruling. And like his enlightened scientific opinion was horrifying. If you understand, he's writing before the Nazis, you know, and then you have eugenics being explored in America and then in actually in Germany afterwards. Uh, Hitler took inspiration from some of the eugenics in America. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, all of these, this, this idea that science is just going to work for the, the greater good and that these technocrats, these scientific rulers can decide what's best for us. As a, somebody who's a big fan of 1984, but never believed that it was really about communism. I thought there has to be something else that, that explains why this resonates so much today when we still have, you know, uh, like the, the, there are parallels, but this essay about um, the world state and saying very clearly that basically everybody who was young around that time looked up to HG Wells, all the thinking people thought that he had the answers. Uh, for me, that's a, a very solid basis for starting to um, talk about H.G. Uh, or George Orwell, 1984, and sort of the the uh, criticisms because Orwell, um, you know, I could read another little quote here. Yeah, and I do have a couple of follow up questions for you. Do you want to do you want to do that quote or do you want to? Well, let's just see here. The the quote is, um, you know. Uh, creatures out of the dark ages have come marching into the present, uh, Orwell says. You know, he's talking during World War II. And if they are ghosts, they are at any rate ghosts which need a strong magic to lay them. 
the people who have shown the best understanding of fascism are either those who have suffered under it or those who have a fascist streak in themselves. A crude book like The Iron Heel, written nearly 30 years ago, is a truer prophecy of the future than either Brave New World or The Shape of Things to Come. Shape of Things to Come, I believe, was H.G. Uh, Wells. Yeah. Um, although I think it, I, I'm more familiar with it just as called Things to Come. I don't, maybe the full title was Shape of Things to Come, but uh, I think it's it was this movie way back in the 30s. Um, right. H.G. Wells late movies, maybe. Yeah. The yeah, it's a things. it's an amazing movie. People should watch it because it is this very striking vision of a a biological war that decimates the human population and um and the different basically the way that a world government would emerge from the ruins of a, an all encapsulating total war that destroys everything. But um, yeah, so you know, here we have just again he's listing the actual titles of the the books that H.G. Wells writes and talks about how, um, you know, they're not true prophecies. They don't really understand the future properly because um, they're, they're sort of, they're not crude enough. They don't tap into the, the impulses of human nature enough. And I think that's why Orwell's uh, satire and his commentaries resonates so much longer and he's so much better remembered for pointing out the dangers than hg wells but that that is sort of the question is you know if hg wells had all of these disciples back in this time and orwell sort of saw himself as an underdog fighting against this giant of of british thinking and intellectuals um you know which one ended up you know, having a bigger impact and, and how much impact did H.G. Wells really have with this nonfiction and his essays that he has. So, uh, yeah, go ahead with the follow-up questions. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that really got me thinking about a couple of things. Um, number one, the, the inconsistency that um, Orwell talks about, I was thinking about this because Wells was a working class guy. And so in a way i can i can picture him um using the the morlocks and the eloy in the time machine the morlocks being an uh, a representative uh, representative of the working class and so you can see that marxist idea of them being the ones that provide all the the um the wealth and the and the comfort for the Eloy, which are basically just like these little beautiful four foot people that are up there laying around copulating and, and eating and, you know, right. Essentially living off of them, um, in a very parasitic way. Um, and then being, you know, eaten and, and oblivious and, and helpless. And so that, that ties into a, a resentment of the elite that that yeah. makes sense in a marxist perspective but then you have this idea that there's going to be these scientific elite that will be able to technocratically manage the population and so that's mm. a it's such an inconsistent um view to have 
but HGL is definitely. Uh, go ahead. I was going to say because of that that blind spot that he had for science that that Orwell picks up on that that disregards the intrinsic human nature and this that that secular humanist evolutionary perspective that allows for a, a belief that as long as we evolve enough and our knowledge evolves enough and our we become advanced enough that that the intrinsic good and evil that um that we have in our in our nature as human beings uh, from like say the christian worldview you you let go of that and and you have this false sense of security when it comes to the science and the technology and the, and knowledge being able to overcome what's intrinsically human where orwell was recognizing that that's inconsistent the the evil can still be done it's just more advanced it, there's more advanced tools being used to conduct the evil and that blind spot that we see with the elites now it, that believe in this yeah hg wells believes genuinely in progress with a capital p just there is just such a thing as progress you know the the good will overcome the bad the the, the new will overcome the old these things are just inevitable. Um, and so the question is, who will define it and, and how will it best be implemented? Um, and he sees everything that doesn't conform with progress as sort of a an aberration and a, a glitch, a mistake, a, a small setback maybe, but you can't really have a full um, return to just evil. There, you know, the the progress must happen, and that's sort of what uh, this whole essay that or George Orwell wrote is saying. In fact, he starts by uh, quoting H.G. Wells and talking about how, um, you know, Hitler is running out of steam, and he's he's about to lose, and and Germans are demoralized, and they. You know, they don't want to, uh, you know, basically just left to their own, they will just fall apart because they're not on the side of progress. And so they're just sort of automatically doomed to to lose. And Orwell is saying, you know, why are they, you know, whatever, he's quoting actual current events at the time. Why are they attacking this place? Why are they doing that? It looks very much to me like they're going to keep going until somebody stops them. And, uh, you know, it's not good enough to just, publish articles to say you know look at them they're there's they belong to an old past that doesn't work anymore that that's not going to stop them there needs to be a, a an equal offensive and and something to stop them so it's a very practical look at how uh hg wells is sort of out of touch and he talks about how he grew up in a different era where um you know these sort of horrors weren't happening and so you could afford to sort of speculate on the future a lot more um you know in this utopian sort of way of thinking and and to that end i want to uh point people towards you can just go to archive.org and look up a lot of hg wells old books and you don't have to pay anything you can just has a beautiful display where you can read these things uh, for free on the internet archive and H.G. Wells published a, a small book 
really more like a booklet called The Rights of Man. And in that, um, I'll, I'll read a quote from H.G. Wells here. He says, plainly, this is H.G. Wells, not Orwell. Mm -hmm. Plainly, I am an extreme revolutionary. Although I dislike rhetoric and emotion intensely. That's key when you talk about Orwell. He dislikes rhetoric and emotion intensely. Meaning, I like to just be intellectual and simple and honest. And he sort of, that's where he talks about the sort of this common sense world state. Um, you know, he, he doesn't want to have to rally people with stirring nationalistic speeches or appeal to some God or some other thing. He doesn't like rhetoric and he doesn't like emotion. He doesn't want emotion to factor in it. We should just be cold calculating technocrats and that's how we should get things done. Although he is, as in his own words, an extreme revolutionary. He says, although I dislike rhetoric and emotion intensely, my reason nevertheless compels me to be extreme. I do not believe it is possible to go on with the present way of living that prevails throughout the world with the sovereign governments we have and the economic practices that prevail. So, you know, sovereign national states and capitalism. Mm -hmm. These sovereign governments have given us nothing but inconclusive wars on larger and larger scale, and we have to get rid of them all. This is this is the science fiction author, you know, Oral talking about the rights of man. We have to get rid of sovereign governments. He says, all of them. It is not the present German government we are fighting to get rid of. It is any government of that sort including most emphatically our own. So this would be treason. This would be, you know, just a straight up declaration that our own government, and he's obviously talking about Britain himself, mm -hmm. needs to be destroyed. They have to get rid of it. We have to get rid of and replace, this is continuing the quote, we have to get rid of and replace all these governments by a world system. And that alone is world revolution. So yeah. it's all there. You know, during World War II with H.G. Wells, a cold, calculating, rational, technocratic world system that destroys national governments, destroys national sovereignty, including his own. He's not making an exception. He wants all governments to capitulate and to uh, and to be destroyed and so um you know this is and orwell says he's the thought leader of that time you know yeah. it's a very it's actually a very direct connection between uh hg wells putting this kind of rhetoric out an extreme revolutionary who nevertheless is not passionate and does not feel like he needs rhetoric he's okay working behind the scenes he's okay um you know obviously he's trying to invite people into this thing rationally but mm -hmm. there's no reason to think that those dis who are disciples of his wouldn't say okay we need to implement this through secrecy we need to implement this through policies one step one inch at a time here and there in this sort of there's a term for it when you do that i forget what it's called it's it's named mm -hmm. after an old uh 
Fabianism? The, the Fabian, Fabian? It's exact, that's exactly it, yes. Uh, Fabian socialism is this is this idea based on this old Roman general who uh, Fabius who uh, would always retreat if things got bad enough, and the enemy would think they're giving up because they're retreating, but actually he was just moving his forces, and then he would attack somewhere else, and he would never fully commit his entire force anywhere. Um, he would do little strikes here, little strikes there, and just sort of whittle down his opponents through these smaller skirmishes, and the enemy would always try, in the name of honor and and pride, you know, to have a major one-on-one -on -one conflict and settle the whole thing all at once, and he was famous for never committing all of his forces anywhere so that even if he lost somewhere, it didn't really, you know, hurt his chances at the next one. He could always sort of um, split up and, and do more. And so socialism through that, which I think perfectly describes this, you know, is this sort of idea that one step at a time everywhere, uh, those who are part of this conspiracy will just, um, will implement the world government through self-sabotage, essentially, through destroying their own governments. That's the best way to do it, uh, to get mm -hmm. into power and then erode the institutions from within through either outraging people with scandals, through um, you know self-destructive policies and just social manipulation, all of the things we see today where we're like, why are the people in charge so stupid? Why are they so dumb? That's what everybody used to say. And now people are more aware that it's an actual conspiracy. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was growing up, it was almost impossible to convince anyone that there was a conspiracy. You just, even George Bush and these other people, they would just say they're stupid. They're just incompetent. They don't know how to govern. No, if they're a believer in this kind of philosophy, you can, get yourself into power and then become an active saboteur against your own government. And that's what HG Wells was calling for. Um, and I just, you know, have to point out that HG Wells wrote uh, a book called the open conspiracy. <laughs> um, well, that's the good. Full, the full title is the open conspiracy blueprints for a world revolution. It was published in 1928, 28. So we're, we're talking well before World War II. Um, he was already 60 when he, when he wrote it. And, um, and you've made this, you've made this point um, a couple times throughout, but if, for it to really sink in is this is one of the most, the foremost influencers of the time, we'll say is talking openly about this stuff and and so the fact that it's carried forward um as effectively as as it has been is is mind-boggling the the patience but you see that in the eugenics movement too which he was closely mm -hmm. tied to and advocated for personally but um go ahead i just the fact that if we put that in modern terms we're talking about someone with the in influential power, relatively speaking, of like a Joe Rogan, let's say, on, sure. the, on the population. N not making any comparisons ideologically between the two, but 
someone that that's very easy for people to recognize now that has a massive influence on the population and how people think and, and what they're talking about. Short break here. As you know, I've altered my value for value system in a rather unorthodox way recently. I do this because I love to learn and I hopefully encourage and inspire people to enter the arena of ideas to sift and winnow through evidence and conduct various thought experiments. I ask only one thing of you, my wonderful producers. Each episode, I will be featuring a need, shining a spotlight on opportunities to make a difference by returning any value I may have provided to you to someone or something that could use a hand. This episode, I want you to consider chipping in and helping the Luciano family of New Jersey. Jessica Luciano and her husband are trying very hard to raise the necessary funds to adopt little baby Alani. Alani's mother, Jessica's cousin, was murdered by her fiancé while baby Alani was in the house. It was a terrible tragedy, and, and the family is trying to do everything they can to provide a loving and healthy home for little baby Alani. I have included a link to Jessica's Give, Send, Go campaign. Please consider helping out. I won't ever know if you did or didn't, but I hope that if you're able, that you help this family and, and give this baby a home. I mean, how often do you get to take part in something as wholesome and pure as giving a baby a home? That's all I ask. Let's get back to it. Yeah, which is which is why it it annoys me so much that he's only remembered as a as a science fiction author, and you know, you know Aldous Huxley or somebody will you know with Brave New World, he, he's recognized as being more of a um, you know sort of a thought leader in in this sort of picture of how things go, and it's like H.G. Wells. This is where I was also going to go with. I want to follow up on the open conspiracy just a little bit because uh, yeah. you know that's that's worth pointing out what he was trying to really advocate for. But um, H.G. Wells's science fiction also is still reverberating today with the UAP phenomenon and mm -hmm. the the alien disclosures if, as they're being you know presented. Um, it's all still from H.G. Wells's playbook, and so. Um, the the open conspiracy blueprints for a world revolution literally called the open conspiracy because he says you can't have um real world government and a real change you know with one separate groups all over the place trying to do this but you you basically also can't contain the secret you have to have an open conspiracy you have to have people who buy into this ideology of his bridging sort of through white papers as they're called through these official documents through you know big meetings like davos which just happened um mm -hmm. like the bilderbergs all these groups that are they're not they're secret but they're not that secret i mean you can act, you can see that they're happening. You just aren't allowed in yourself. Um, H.G. Wells was advocating for that in the open conspiracy. He wanted the intellectuals of the world to get together and just sort of hash it out in the open and admit, yes, we are working for a world government. We want, um, we want to find a path towards this. And in the open conspiracy, he talks about I believe that's the book. Um, I, I've read a bunch of these ones, and I, I sometimes get them a little mixed up, but I'm pretty sure it was in The Open Conspiracy. 
that he actually warns uh, future leaders who buy into this open conspiracy that they're going to have to overcome their conscience and their moral qualms about things because um, he says that you know people basically you know, rulers and, and technocrats and stuff they don't like to destroy things that are beautiful and that are functional and that you know have a lot of tradition and heritage and and value uh, but you're going to have to get over that you know he's basically saying you have to become evil um, you have to you, there will be you know many uh, beautiful people that you have to find ways to eliminate and suppress in order to, you know, achieve this greater good that's going to take care of all of human humankind. And obviously, with Hitler's Aryan ideology, you kind of see exactly what he's talking about. You know, this if we promote things that are beautiful, Hitler wanted this huge revival of beauty and and Renaissance and obviously a master race and sort of just everything that was sort of ideal in his eyes, you know, promote that. But, you know, HG Wells is saying, we're going to have to make the world a, a uh, less beautiful place, maybe a sacrifice, a bunch of stuff in order to achieve this. And so it's not just utopianism and the idea that everything will just get better. If we put our heads together, he don't, he knows that there's a cost to this, Mm -hmm. And, and he's just, you know, advocating Bertrand Russell was very much the same way. You know, he knows that religion and, and, uh, traditional values are standing as an obstacle in the way of his, his idea of the scientific revolution. Um, he's just saying, you know, so what, you know, we have the moral high ground as scientists because we represent progress, you know, mm -hmm. and religion belongs to the past and this, this appeal to aesthetic beauty or, traditional values is uh, it's just obsolete and therefore it's okay for us to destroy it and replace it. And so he's actually cautioning about this stuff. One of the uh, things, go ahead. Sorry. One of the things that always blows my mind is um, how, how much influence um, our formative years can have on our lives. And not only that, when it turns into, when, when someone becomes as influential as H.G. Wells was, um, and still is, how, how much that can ripple out, out to other people. So coming from a working class family, his dad belonged to a group, um, called the free thinkers, I believe. And so they were, I wouldn't even I, I don't know if they were atheist or agnostic, but but basically they were very much what he he espouses, the ideas of. Um, a, a very um, functional life and uh, everything is based on empiricism. And and right. so and his mother was a, a religious lady. She was she had a faith and she was uh, devout to her to her faith and she wasn't even able to live with them because of the way their living arrangements. So the mother and the father were separated. He lived with the father. And so he, he comes up with this father who has these ideas about the world and how it's empir empirical only and, and right. very materialistic. And you have to get rid of that. And so to see like a, a young HG Wells, um, 
seeing his mother away working in the factory and uh, with her ancient traditions and her mm. and her thoughts i don't know it just struck me like i wonder how I much thought about that, that yeah i wonder how much of that you know turned him into the man he was um intellectually you know just trying to humanize right uh, cuz you know i know that um i'm pretty sure it was hg wells who was um yeah he was sort of an outsider within the really snobby upper class um uh, not secret societies but uh, book clubs or whatever they were called at the time um mm-hmm. like um Cecil Rhodes and um and Milner and these different guys who were uh really sort of like old British colonial thinkers who just wanted to have the the Anglo empire, you know, continue forever and just have this British supremacy over all the the subhuman species and they were always incorporating eugenics logic and and race race theory into uh, why they deserve to just permanently be on top. And H.G. Wells was a an outsider within that group who nevertheless, you know, won over a bunch of them and and uh, showed that the British Empire couldn't continue forever if for no other reason than the fact that it it would continue to provoke people more and more the more successful it was. It kind of had to go underground and become a an enlightenment movement so that they could lead the next phase where it's a world government obviously being led by this British, you know, effort, um, you know, to, to seduce in America and these other nations and to come, you know, that's what happens in World War II is they get America to come and save Britain and they're just, you know, best of buddies ever since. Um, it's sort of like, you know, stop trying to be a colonial power and start trying to be a appeal to the common person appeal to the average people that's why he puts out popular fiction that catches the attention of young people and becomes there's a fun element to it and but they almost always do have a moral that ties back into his scheme which is you know one of his most famous works the war of the worlds is entirely about how britain is not prepared for a threat that is you know, big enough that because it is this colonial power, it's not it's not prepared to think in terms of rapid response, global efforts and Mm -hmm. the alien phenomenon, as he proposes, it would be something that would unify countries. It would cross borders. It would not respect sovereignty. It's not a formal declaration of war. And so he's the underlying message of the war of the world is um, we need to have a global response to global problems. That's what else do you see constantly right now in our current day, global yeah. warming and, you know, global inequality. And again, yeah. Yeah. today, the hearings in Congress about the aliens, the disclosure stuff, I'm paying attention to that stuff because um, I've seen this as from the back in the, you know, <laughs> I grew up watching X-Files and I, you know, I thought it was an amazing show um, but it was all about, you know, disclosure. When will the government actually reveal these things? That was sort of the whole point of the message of that show is that someday the government will actually disclose the truth. And that's when 
we can have this this transformation in society you know it's no longer going to be an x file it will be official truth and how will the population react to that and um that's happening now you know they're pulling the trigger on that propaganda and so you have the 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 pentagon which controls all the information leaking out these things to try to engage the public and um as i was listening to the congressmen in the oversight committees coming out of these briefings um i don't know where the best place is to find the video i saw a clip of it on tiktok but you can see them come out and talk to the press after this briefing and now it's coming out and that david grush was his name the the whistleblower who sort of kickstarted this whole thing quote unquote right yes the 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 mouthpiece of the of the propaganda that they're choosing um he's saying that this is interdimensional it's not that they're from another planet you know it's not that they're little green men it's not what hg wells um proposed which is literally martians you know coming in and 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 they have their own their big eyes and their you know tentacles and things like that it's these are interdimensional beings that break the laws of physics and so there's a almost a hallucinogenic effect to it there's a it's it's mind warping it doesn't work within the our physical realm and so there's a spiritual element essentially um with the with the interdimensional side and but the government is now the military is now going to disclose essentially that that uh, we don't live in a materialist world. There is, there are other dimensions that break our laws of physics and defy all scientific reason, and we are going to have to somehow interface with them. And what does that mean? What do you what do you get when you have the military advocating for essentially psychic or spiritual? Uh, action war perhaps you know against things that don't obey physics you can't just shoot it with a bullet you can't just destroy it with aircraft these things are kind of spiritual beings maybe we need to have a new type of weaponized spiritual warfare that you know this is the direction the current disclosures are getting at and it's been a very long process a fabian socialist type system of planting the seeds for this stuff uh and i obviously in my book firing the rabbit hole you know try to take this to the the uh, logical extreme here where they're basically saying demons are our possible allies if we if we negotiate this right you know they're not destroying us they're not killing us they're trying to send us warnings they're inviting us to you know uh, review our policies and what are these what are these aliens when we do hear about you know people like david grush or um stephen greer when these other advocates going and talking about it's always that they're actually they're not that bad you know they're just trying to stop the nationalist sovereign governments with nuclear weapons from destroying the planet or the climate or the environment they're always actually the the stewards of the world these interdimensional beings are trying to save us from ourselves and so they can be 
like that terrible, just terrible Marvel um, Eternals. Right. Yeah, yes. Thing along those lines. Exactly. And and so, um, again, I just want to, I have to point out because I'm, you know, I made the points in Fire in the Rabbit Hole using whatever I had on hand at the time, and I think I I got a, a good amount of substance in there about who was involved and where the stuff was coming from. But since yeah. then, I'm just there's so much more I've learned about how actually sort of a straight line you can draw from H.G. Wells to the current day with the War of the Worlds being this call to arms to stop thinking of your nation as being, you know, safe and protected and having your sort of old fashioned beliefs. Um, you have to have this willingness to have a globalist system um, and that an alien threat would be the thing that would shock people into uh, into giving up their regional sort of mentality and and think in terms of a global team, a global uh, partnership that could deal with something like that. And obviously, um, I can't believe I'm going to forget his name. Um, he's literally the guy that made Citizen Kane, and he made the American version of it. Um, oh, no, Orson. Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Yeah, Orson Welles does the American version of War of the Worlds, and uh, he takes it out of Britain and he you know, puts it in New Jersey and uh, and talks about how you know it's it's produced as a a news broadcast, um, yeah. and so then you know it it gets a lot of Americans confused, especially in rural areas or places where they've never even heard of this kind of stuff before. There technically was, a, you know, a warning that this is a fictional drama and whatever, but uh, it was sensational enough that obviously it it sort of proved the point that you could have this alarm being rung that America is not safe either. You know, the the little rural places, you know, it, it could happen just like this any day. You're not expecting it. So this legacy of H.G. Wells is just all over the place. Um Orwell was responding to him. Uh, our idea of the aliens being this threat, this phenomenon that can come out and and sort of capture the public imagination has been very carefully managed because I, you can hear from them that uh, they one of the reasons why they trickle this stuff out so slowly and they're so precious about it is because they know that if they did some sort of data dump or they just sort of had a WikiLeaks, you know, treasure trove of stuff you could go dig through, it would actually lose its impact. It would not be sensational enough. They have to sort of stage manage the whole disclosure process uh, so that there's time for people to speculate and then they can adjust their discussion around it and stuff because they're they're trying to go for it now. I, I believe it's going to tie in with this sort of World War III collapse, dollar collapse scenario when they create a crisis that's big enough that people are hopeless and they are, uh, you know, economically broken and uh, the dollar is worthless and there's hyperinflation and all whatever all happens. Uh, the point will be to plant these seeds now so that when the time comes, they can unveil 
the answers from these interdimensional enlightened you know beings who presumably had some role to play in the evolution of mankind and they have been guiding us the whole time as loving masters that wanted us to understand the our higher purpose and you know this very much a uh, mystical element to it and so uh, hg wells wasn't going in that direction he wasn't trying to say that aliens were it's not the same script but it's using that inspiration using that precedent and then taking it in this because they they can't you know they basically can't uh, have cgi that's good enough or you know a hoax that's good enough i believe that's a big reason why they're doing this uh with the interdimensional aspect but um i guess that's that's sort of a different topic but it's to me very just very interesting to see actual congressmen coming out of a briefing and talking about how i can't tell you the details but you know um you know it's it, we're not talking about little green men in there you know there's a phenomenon that's interdimensional and we have to sort of brace the public for this because it's going to you know theoretically overturn all religions it's going to overturn all traditional you know spiritual knowledge and so um they're trying to prepare us and the military is obviously trying to prepare these congressmen um who are not in on it they it's not like they're all part of the same club this is very controlled material and they're but they're trying to stage play it so that the right people in the right positions who represent the congressmen represent you and you and me you know they represent uh, the average people they're the ones who will sort of be the the messengers as they're in these committees and they have these hearings and they'll disclose things um so that it's not just you know somebody at the white house podium you know saying the aliens are real you know it's like that would be too sloppy that would be too blatant you know they need to to handle it the right way one knows i i would say culturally we've seen if you if you just look at um hollywood um we've seen a, a move from the more original um spacemen little green men martians we've we've moved um and within the last i'd say two decades for sure I've seen uh, more and more uh, of a creep of that interdimensional spiritual aspect. And we've also seen uh, a big rise in this idea of the, I guess, what's called the, the Great Awakening, too. And this idea of um, right. how, oh, okay, we have quantum physics now, so we can spiritualize science and... Um, now we have these multidimensional or interdimensional beings and, and bringing, bringing um, ancient pantheons of gods into popular culture over and over and over again, rewritten and, and repurposed and, you know, yeah. put some nice long hair and some big muscles and, you know, maybe an electric car. It'll look great. But, you know, the, the Thor and uh, Tony Stark, you know, yeah, combination. But we've seen we've seen that move, and and I 
and I think that the I think that the materialist perspective, that straight hard science perspective that that has fallen short. And so the spiritual bringing back the spiritual aspect and, and turning science into religion um, right is very effective because people are dying for a relationship with a God on a human on a human level uh, and if you can give them a God and and still have them deny sovereignty of the God but you know but these are some good people or good aliens or good interdimensional beings that maybe they've they've been mistaken for gods in the past but the, it's science mm-hmm. really. and and they're going to tell us how to live and that way you can have a degree of separation from the actions that have to be taken in order to implement those policies. I wouldn't even humor any of this. I wouldn't even care about any of it if I wasn't confronted by real people in my own life and, you know, even more online, obviously, who fully buy into that. Like, it's not a hypothetical. Uh, You know, I'm used to being around Christians who who don't concern themselves with any of this stuff. But when I meet non-Christians and, it, you know, if we're friends and we get into conversations, it doesn't take much for them to in some way or another say that they want to believe in something beyond mm-hmm. the normal rational bounds of, uh, of daily life. They want to have something transcendental and they will eventually say, if it's aliens, I'm all on board, you know, uh, they're they're prepared and ready to jump on this bandwagon. And, you know, I can think of an example. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not going to give the guy's name or anything, but somebody I know personally that was even, you know, hypothesizing that he had encountered aliens when he was younger. He had some sort of weird dream or something, you know, and everybody's had some sort of experience in a dream, especially when you're younger, that you could you could remember in a certain way and say, I think I've had a you know some sort of encounter that defies explanation and and it really mystifies you. So he really had no concrete experience that he could point to. But it's almost as if just that desperation, that hunger for a religious experience, he was already hyping himself up. And then as these things were happening, as these disclosures were happening, he would come and talk to me and try to, you know, he knows that I'm a Christian. And so he's sort of challenging me that, you know, look at this. What about this? How do you, how do you deal with this? These facts are coming out now. They're talking about it. And I'm just thinking they've got you, they've got you exactly where they want you starve you of, of spirituality. And then, now present you with this transcendental thing and then uh, some cool uh, counterculture figures like Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and Bertrand, not Bertrand Russell, Russell Brand. Um, uh, you know, they can go and promote psychedelics with science and they promote the expansion of the consciousness and this sort of psychic pioneering and psychic exploration with spiritual experiences and they're sort of creating this narrative here and there the fabian system where you you never fully commit to one 
personality or one thing. It can be spread out. Um, they're constructing this narrative that, yeah, aliens were ancient. They were responsible for our evolution. And, and so they can sort of beta test all of these concepts in these podcasts and in these um, sort of, you know, druggy experiences where these guys are just spitballing and they're seeing what works and what doesn't and what resonates with people. And you suddenly get millions and millions of people supporting this one episode of a podcast where this guy is going off on this epic rant about how aliens were, you know, Jesus was basically one of the uh, channeling some of these beings or what are, you know, theosophy is really behind all of it. If you want to put a name to it, right. This idea that, uh, that all religions are one and they are all just sort of a misunderstanding of the greater uh, phenomenon of, uh, you know, whatever, what insert, whatever you want. It doesn't really matter because it's not a real philosophy. It's a, it's a placeholder that can continuously adapt to uh, whatever needs to be said, you know, quantum physics, exactly like you pointed out. And like I talk about in my book um, is this, this thing that, they can pull out and they can say anything they want about what are you going to disprove them? I mean, you can't do quantum science experiments. You can't, you know, do string theory in your basement. So, you know, what is, what are you going to say? You know, they have the upper hand, they have a monopoly on all this narrative, but then they can weave it into this um, syncretistic uh, theosophical mystical idea of all these religions being false but there is a phenomenon, you know, that they've all misunderstood, and that is what you should be exploring. And so it ties back into a um, actually the same thing of that New World Order H.G. Wells talks about of breaking down the culture, breaking down the borders between not only nations and official, uh, you know, states and policies and stuff like that, and having federal unions and and global orders, but culture too, religions, you know, erase the dividing lines between them, have one melting pot where we all give up on our religions. And now we just have, you know, an understanding that Islam is no different from Christianity is no different from Hinduism or anything else, because we were all basically just misunderstanding this one phenomenon that's been happening throughout history. And, you know, so a then theory, they're, they're looking for a unified theory of everything. Yeah, but they don't want to push it as that. You know, they would never, they would never want to label what they're doing and allow it to be targeted so directly because then you could create a a coherent response to it. That's why uh, it annoys me again that we have the great awakening concept uh, being pushed so generically as this umbrella term for what are actually at least five or six different agendas and, and working groups and think tanks that are trying to inject their agendas. You have the QAnon, uh, Trump worship, um, apocalyptic sort of the storm that's going to kill all the pedophiles on one hand. And you mm. have, um, and they're trying to always leak a little bit of scripture into their stuff and make it sound like this is prophecy happening. And, and, you know, yeah. Trump is this prophetic figure and stuff. And then you can have, um, you know, natural healing, holistic, um, you know, diet and, and, uh, whatever that, you know, appeals to a lot of women. It's a very, you know, 
it's it's good you know why would you not want to have you know a return to sort of ancient practices and and find ancient remedies and medicines because genuinely we all hate big pharma and we hate how you know the the our diets and our lifestyle has been corrupted by these corporations yeah. but the question is always what's the solution and so the solution is return to shamanistic you know um ancient practices and that gets very closely tied in with the vibrations and manifesting and you know controlling your consciousness and manifesting your own future and so if you have enough positive vibrations in your life then you know you can manifest uh, whatever and then that ties in with quantum theory because that's all about vibrations at the substrate of reality and so reality itself is just vibrations and these concepts all get merged in the end into the great awakening but they are not going to tell it to you the way i'm telling it to you that these are different narratives agendas that are converging to create this this very much planned um replacement this what i call the green world order or mm -hmm. uh you know what theoso theosophical people would call the age of aquarius um the, this breakdown of the old world and the creation of a new world a new world order with a new age uh, that goes along with it, a new age of enlightenment that goes along with this new world where everything is broken down and all the people unify, but they want you to think that you're doing it yourself. You're discovering these things. You listen to the podcast. Your friend told you about, uh, you know, vibrations and how he is manifesting. It, it's not going to come from some one authoritative charismatic figure that's going to shove it down your throat or force it onto you. It's supposed to be this seduction into it. And um, and that's really the major innovation since H.G. Wells, I think. H.G. Wells wanted to have a rational um, sort of uh, open conspiracy where these people would, would um, appeal to the common person using logic and educate them on why this is the best thing. But what I'm understanding now as I look more and more into it is that that failed the United Nations theory of how to create this world federation. And, and that sort of petered out during the Cold War. And um, the mystic occult side of it had to try to take over and create the counterculture, the controlled counterculture that would then do the job. And those who are Wellsian uh, open conspirators, they're still in those positions sabotaging our governments and destroying our critical infrastructure and you know erasing farmers and making sure that we can't sustain ourselves and we're unhealthy and all these things. They're still doing that. But on the other hand, as a flanking operation to get both sides, they're also implanting the cultural seeds of our own destruction as well and erasing objectivity, erasing uh, logical discussions and, and creating these rabbit holes for people to go down, uh, which all end up leading to that so-called awakening, the age of Aquarius. And uh, I'm also noticing in a very one-to-one day-to-day experience, if especially if I actually post content on TikTok, um, Christians are being put in the crosshairs of all of this. Christians yeah. especially are being put in the crosshairs because we represent 
the old order. We represent um, exclusive claims that Jesus is the only way to get salvation. Um, he is the door. He is the the shepherd. You know, Jesus says uh, you can't enter the kingdom by any other door. He is the door. And so it's very offensive. It's it's hate speech. It's whatever they want to call it. You know, it's the worst thing you can imagine in today's in this age of Aquarius is to have something that defies all other ideologies and all other spiritualities and says there is one source of life um, and, and truth, the, the truth, the life and the way. And, you know, if you're not on board with that, we're not going to kill you. We're not going to do anything to you. We're not going to even discriminate against you. But that's our belief. But that's not good enough because I've even seen people talk about how we're disrupting their ability to manifest. You know, yeah, we're that's not those frequencies. <laughs> we're sending out the negative, pessimistic vibrations, um, very low vibration stuff to be talking about Jesus being, you know, the only path to salvation. And so, man, they sure hurt. They sure hate that signal we're sending out. And so. And the Great Awakening is also uh, a a campaign against traditional Christianity, and uh, yeah, it's, it really comes full circle to a satanic conspiracy. Obviously, I believe, um, yeah. and these people, whether they know it or not, a lot of people who are the best agents for Satan have no idea that that's what they are. I mean, Satan is the deceiver; he's not going to tell you the truth of what he's getting you to do. It's not going to be a conscious uh, decision to follow that in, in many ways. It, it's always going to have some veneer of something else to it. But, um, you know, obviously that's what I believe is going on. So, well, we're, um, we're, we're warned. Um, I was just reading in, uh, I believe it was first John uh, about antichrist and, you, you know, people culture, culturally, many Christians picture some guy, who might not look that much different than me, maybe some sort of malevolent looking guy with a goatee uh, <laughs> that's that's telling the world what to do. But what's being described is antichrist is anything that doesn't declare that that Christ is the son of God, was right in flesh, crucified and rose. And so that that hostility is is going to it, it shouldn't surprise us what what we should be on guard for is anything that anything that from a Christian perspective, anything that denies that anything that's universal mm. like that, or that theosophical like that should really get our hackles up. And that doesn't mean um, to be aggressive. It means well, that's a warning sign and say, okay, whatever's going on here, obviously something's um, something's off. Because I know a lot, I know a lot of people that are that are they're deceived and and they believe and they want the best for the people around them and they think they're sure. doing the right thing and all that. So, you know, it most people are not devious in the sense that in their everyday life they want other people to suffer or they hate other people. It's just that they've been so coerced into these tribalistic uh, mindsets and, and compartmentalized in all these different groups 
but the one defining thing that really should separate for Christians um, should separate is whether or not uh, Christ is the center. And uh, I know that that's off a little from our original topic, but. Um, well, in some it, ways it, it is, but it's. Together. Yeah, because because when you're dealing with a a global conspiracy, it's exactly what the Bible predicted. Um, you know, the world be, becomes deceived more and more. People will increasingly be deceived as time goes on. And I would also point out in the Bible, uh, you know, in just literally the language of Hebrew and and, and the, the term holy, people have a very deep misconception of what holiness means. It doesn't mean a magical power that, you know, comes from God or whatever. It's the term holy really refers to being separated. Yeah. Um, and so the more holy you are, the more distinguished you are from the masses, from the, those who are deceived, for those who are um, not willing to, because it's it's understood that being part of the herd is appealing. It's understood that going along with the masses is the default. Um, so to stand apart from that, like a prophet or like Jesus or like you know, God, they're all considered holy, not because they have a magic infusion of of power or they're completely, I mean, in the case of God and Jesus, obviously they're without fault and they do have miraculous power. But, um, you know, holy people in general would be a people who are separated. That's why Israel was supposed to be a holy people, not because they would be doing miracles constantly, but because they wouldn't do the practices of everyone else. And so Christians are supposed to be holy collectively and individually. And it all comes back to, are you willing to divide yourself from the rest of mankind? And guess what? That's exactly what Satan is trying to reverse with the new world order, with the age of Aquarius, with exactly the things we're talking about. It's about erasing divisions, lumping us back in, getting everyone on the same page and having us subscribe to the same ideology, the same syncretistic ecumenical is another word they use where, you know, that is about trying to unite the different denominations of Christianity, meaning go back to the Roman Catholic church, you know, come back to your mother church as they often try to refer to themselves as. Um, and then the Vatican itself has already acknowledged that they're willing to negotiate with aliens They've already said that we all need to worship the earth and that it's, you know, like our mother. And they've already become fully engaged in the process of transforming itself into the leader of this movement because they don't want to be left behind. They want to be the leader of the syncretistic theosophical world system, if that's what it's going to be. They don't they don't have any scruples about that. They can bend the logic any way they need to, just like they have throughout history. And so. Um, you know, we are dealing with the exact same thing that the apostles were dealing with and that uh, the, Jew the Jews in the Old Testament were dealing with. It it's always about being separate. And so it's always about being willing to, and, and that always comes with persecution. That always comes with uh, a level of discomfort and a level of um, sacrifice to to be willing to say, you know, um, we're not going to make 
the same deal that you are. You've compromised something in order to belong to this collective. We're not going to compromise. You know, we're not going to to uh, give up what the truth is in order to appeal to you. And that's where directly ties into faith in God. It directly ties into, well, if we're not going to have safety from being part of this whole system, if we're not going to have alliances and partnerships and be part of the herd, how do we stay safe? Who takes care of us? What is? That's where God comes in. That's where you have faith in God. So it's actually just one continuous message from the Old Testament to today, which is reject the collective, reject this constant push, the Tower of Babel, literally, in the you know, right after the, the Noah's flood incident, you have mankind gathering together as one people in order to become this unified world order. The I don't know if it's the United Nations or the EU, but one of them has a Tower of Babel as their headquarters building. They have an, an incomplete Tower of Babel as being their, their monument. Um, and they are very much trying to recreate that one world government, the one system. And what did God do? He divided up all the languages, divided up all the people, and then he chose one of them to be separate from all the rest. So he doesn't want the collective with one, you know, uh, one ideology unifying everyone. He wants to have a distinct people set apart. And um, so that is literally the moral from the dawn of mankind till today. And it just becomes more and more articulated as it goes on to the point where you have Jesus talking about how you have to um, hate yourself and hate, you, you know, even your own family will betray you. And even those in your own household will, will be against you. If you follow him um, that you will be completely isolated. There will be nobody. Um, he talks about how in the end you'll have, um, you know, Christians betraying each other as, as the breakdown of society happens. And, you know, really you have to be prepared to go all the way, you know, to be an individual martyr and, uh, and, and to stand up and, and, and no matter what happens, what kind of pressure they put on you to not compromise. And, you know, that's in my sub stack that I do winter Christian, the winter Christian, uh, sub stack. I'm, I'm trying to prepare people for that thought experiment, that possibility that in the next couple of years, possibly within the next 10 years, the as society breaks down and as chaos takes over and hatred ramps up and you have this hardening of people's hearts and the lack of compassion i fully believe that um you know there will christians will be put in the crosshairs and it will specifically be not because you call yourself a christian you can be a christian if you're a progressive christian if you're liberal enough to just accept that everything is the same and jesus is just another you know, uh, another enlightened being like Buddha and like anyone else, they don't have a problem with that. It's the exclusive claims. It's the it's the saying that we're not like you. Um, that's what they hate. And and so yeah, I'm I'm all about that. And I do see the direct correlation to H.G. Wells, the One World Government, the the open conspiracy, all of it. Yeah, and and you know, as they say, hell is uh, paved. Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and it, as we as we interact with people and as we're as we're confronted with all the various narratives whether it's 
pro climate change or counter climate change or or pro vax or anti vax or all, all the, there's there's so many different um compartmentalized groups that that people get so caught up in the game of of engaging with all these different topics and all these different as you as you point out in your um book fire and the rabbit hole all these different rabbit holes that and they and they end up wasting so much time and energy at each other's throats about things that are not truly consequential and don't really relate to their lives and, and it's a lot of wasted time and energy in in my perspective and i know that some people don't even like to hear that because you know it's like the my team is is good so i you know don't don't talk bad about my team but there's so many people out there that mean well that are even pushing back against the globalist agenda but they are doing so in a way that is actually perpetuating um their own ineffectiveness in their lives. And that's that's why I advocate so much for people to um, unplug and get into the dirt and into the real world as much as possible because it is, um, that is where you find your individualism. That's where you find your personality is mm. in the relationships with the people around you in real life. And and that's that's what God is. God is a trinity. Um, and, and relational in in his very nature, and, and so that's what he wants for us and with us. And and the division that we see out there, and and the call for unification that isn't really unification. It's the killing of our holiness, our separateness, mm. our personalities. It, it, right. It, it's a it's a constant assault against. The person, the individual personality, the unique personality that God created in you, and so I, I always try to advocate for people to, to unplug as much as possible. Of course, um, I don't tell people to stick their head in in the sand or anything. And obviously, I wouldn't have a podcast if I didn't think there was some value to um, yeah. having conversations. But um, I really um, appreciate you coming on again and, and um, going through this uh, thought experiment with us. Um, do you have any any thoughts that you want to share? Anything that came to mind or, or any anything you want to sum up uh, as we get near the end here? Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with what you just said. And I would also just add that I'm very sympathetic to what people are going through right now. We are living in an unprecedented time of deception and pressure. Psychological warfare is really what it is. And it is designed at the lowest level of youths, teens, kids, scrolling TikTok, uh, mothers, uh, people who normally were never even close to these topics, never even within a mile of thinking about conspiracies and the breakdown of society and and climate crisis destroying the planet or vaccines killing everyone we I, for my whole life you know i'm close to 40 by now um 
it was impossible to even start to engage people in topics like this. Even when I was interested in it when I was younger, it was like way over their head and they didn't care. Now mm -hmm. I see on a very low level grandparents and and just single moms and people who really were never in the war, so to speak, uh, feeling very conflicted, very confused, wanting to have direction, wanting to feel like essentially that they can go back to having what you said. They can go back to having just a normal life and not have to think about these things. And so I'm very sympathetic to that because, you know, I don't want everyone to become a, you know, a researching nerd that goes and digs up these books and does all this research. Nobody should have to be doing that. Um, but that's where they're getting us is that they disrupt average life. They create a lockdown you can't ignore. They are preparing for these greater and greater signs and wonders, so to speak, to drag people into these conflicts and pick sides. And then when a person does take a stand, you know, let's say like the vaccine or something like that, and they say, no, this I'm going to fight against, you know, that's a brave effort to just reach out and, and to take a principled stand on something. But these people didn't want to, nobody wanted, these people didn't want to be warriors. You know, they didn't want to be involved in this. They wanted to be loved and have a good community and a family and just mind their own business and, and do their lives because they're not trying to be culture warriors. And so I would encourage people to, in some sense, let go of that because it is a trap um, to to try to go back to just being an individual and and actually see that that itself is courageous to not get sucked into the culture war and the psychological war to become obsessed with the 2024 election that we're now, you know, who knows what kind of insanity is going to come out this year um, revolving around that. So, you know, we're looking at World War III, the Middle East, Iran, all these things. We're looking at these things. It's all timed out. It's all choreographed, I believe, on some level to build up this narrative of the ultimate crisis because they want every single person to be invested in that scenario. And so it actually takes uh, a certain amount of stubbornness and, and grit to resist that and to say, I am just going to double down on my own personal life. Um, going, you know, if you're a Christian, especially, I think it, you know, studying your own Bible and if you still have a church, you know, go to your own church and help the people you can. And I think uh, that is itself a sort of a heroic stand to take when the masses are being led into the rabbit holes. Uh, you can resist the rabbit holes and you can just do your own life. That That is the revolution, just living just living in the real world is is a revolution but it's you know it i i have a high respect for um people taking the time to to dig through and and read um read the books i i mean i i love learning for the sake of learning and and mm -hmm. to expand my horizons and in it and as long as you're able to understand that this is this is knowledge and um 
understanding the world around you is, is not a bad thing, but getting caught up in the right. drama it is where it goes sideways. So I appreciate people like you, Terry, that really take your time to to dig into things and share your your honest and very human uh, perspective. Your your um, Substack um, column, the Winter Christian. I, I've been reading that and I've gotten a lot out of that. And uh, like I said, I we talked about your book, Fire in the Rabbit Hole. I read that and I just started the. Maybe everyone, maybe everyone was wrong. Maybe everyone was wrong. Yeah. Revelation. Yeah. So, um, I, I appreciate you greatly. And, uh, like I said, you always have an open invitation here on the subtle cane podcast and, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Uh, God bless you and your audience. There you have it. Well, I always enjoy my conversations with Terry. The importance of understanding the history and progression of the New World Order agenda can shed light on the current state of affairs in a way that just doom-scrolling through social media can't. It's obvious to me that there are deeper and more insidious origins to the narratives of our day that would compel people to accept a world in which they are subjugated and enslaved under a neo-feudal system of technocratic control. When we start to really understand the incremental Fabian strategies of multi-generational ambitions, we can mount a more measured response. It's also important to recognize that the people who are advocating and accepting these narratives are not always intentionally malevolent. Most people involved in these globalist ambitions really truly believe that they are fighting for the greater good. Though behind it all, there is a darker and more ancient evil that seeks only to supplant the sovereignty of the one true God. Beware of those who deny Christ and seek their own power. As it says in the book of Jude, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. For all you listening, you are valued, you are loved, and you are worthy. God bless and good night. Dancing